Hello and welcome to episode one, first ever, of the One Peter Five podcast. My name is Steve Skojek. I am the publisher of One Peter Five, and we're happy to have you. On today's episode, I interview Andrew Bezad, Islamic scholar, author, and currently the most popular writer on One Peter Five. Andrew's going to tell us a lot of things we need to know about Islam, including this. It is important to repeat because remember, as they said, I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. <laughs> These words of wisdom, the week's top stories, and more coming up next. You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. So I'd like to dive right in today and tell you a little bit about me and tell you a little bit about the website and how it all kind of came about and came together. So I graduated from Franciscan University of Steubenville in 2001 with a double major in communication arts, uh, the specialization in radio and television production, and theology, uh, which was my secondary degree. I added it on because I had some room, and I loved the classes. And so I kind of, as time went on, sort of melded both of those subjects together in, in the way that I was thinking. And in my senior thesis in college, I wrote about media and the new evangelization and there was a hyphen after that e because it was a focus on what i saw as the emerging technologies that were going to make it possible for us to do the sort of thing we're doing with this website and do the sort of thing we're doing with this podcast because at the time i mean it really wasn't there you know i had sketchy dial-up internet at my at my house when i was in college and the speeds were slow uh, the capabilities of computers were definitely not where they are now, where I can be producing a podcast like this in my home studio, uh, really in my home office, um, just on a PC. And that's something that I can do now that I couldn't do then. And it's the same thing with publishing. You know, blogs didn't really get big uh, for most people until around 2003, which was right when I started getting my feet wet blogging. And, you know, I've been blogging now on Catholic topics for. Uh, 11 years, 12 years, something like that. I mean, it's been over a decade that I've been doing it. And because of the blogging that I did, I actually started getting you know, writing gigs over time. Uh, I was a columnist for Crisis Magazine uh, for a number of years. I've also written for Catholic Vote, and then my work has been picked up in a lot of other outlets as well. And of course, I also blog on my own personal site. Always have, probably always will. Um, but, you know, it's given me sort of a, a sense of perspective on the evolving way that Catholic media has worked in, in that period of time. And when I was a senior in college, I was reading Crisis Magazine in print in the library. And a few years later, Crisis Magazine was inside Catholic.com, and it was all online, and we were publishing everything electronically. And it's sort of, you know, there's just been this, this evolution of the content and the technology. In those years, I've also worked in a lot of fields. I did public relations for a boutique firm here in the Washington, D.C. area where I'm based. Um, and I got to get in on the ground floor with corporate social media and sort of understanding the way brands interact with the world. I've also spent a lot of time in those years you know, building these social networks. In 2006, when our interns were coming in talking about Facebook, none of us knew what it was. Uh, in 2007 or 2008, when people started talking about Twitter, we were like, what's the point of that? But over time, these have become resources that allow us to share information uh, in ways that just never was possible before. And so we've sort of reached this point of culmination where all these different networks are out there and we're sharing information and we're overloaded with information, but not all of it is the caliber that we want it to be. And I feel like in the world of online Catholic analysis, you have a couple of different things. You have things that are very academic and very scholarly, and that's good in a way because it helps us to come to a deeper understanding of our faith. But then you've got the stuff that's essentially purely opinion-based, uh, often very critical 
and believe me, I am guilty as charged of, of being involved in that because, you know, it. I was going to say it sells newspapers. I mean, you know, it, it, it gets traffic. It gets eyeballs on your site. And when you talk about controversial topics, people want to engage in that. And it's not that you're doing it sort of in a pandering way because I write about things that I care about and I always have. But there's a there's a point at which you start to know if I write about this thing, it's going to get people stirred up and they're going to want to talk about it. And we're going to you know be able to argue in the comment boxes. And that's sort of, I feel like that's, what's been driving, uh, online Catholic, uh, engagement for the last at least five years, but probably longer, probably closer to 10, really pretty much since the blogosphere started out. And, and I was there at the beginning with, with most of the other people, you know, who, who you would know by name, who've grown up in the Catholic blogosphere, it all started around that time, and, and controversy has continuously driven us. Now, part of the reason that this is possible is because we're lacking clear direction in the church, and there's a crisis in the church, and we can't stick our heads in the sand and pretend like it's not there. I mean, we all know that there are problems. There's problems with liturgy, there's problems with catechesis, there's problems, uh, you know, with 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 our prelates in many cases, you know, not really holding the line on the faith. But we've seen some signs of resurgence and some signs of hope as well. But the lack of leadership allows Catholics who are faithful to the teachings of the church to be at loggerheads over what the teachings of the church really mean and, and how we're supposed to follow those. We're even at a point now where as Roman Catholics, we have two forms of of the liturgy that compete with one another and it's difficult for us to figure out our identity it's almost a schizophrenia you know people call themselves traditionalists people say that they're just catholic people go to one mass people go to the other people go to both is there a synthesis is there a synergy are are, are they irreconcilable or are they the same are they equal we don't really know I feel we don't really know what we're doing and where we're going, and it's very easy under those circumstances to start fighting with each other. Now, we've always had Catholics that dissented, and we've always had Catholics that didn't follow church teaching. But what we're seeing now, especially over the last year, is a lot of infighting between Catholics who should all be on the same team. We're all people who believe that we got to follow the teachings of the church. We're all people who have, you know, called ourselves papists, you know, for however many years. We all shared a common sense of identity as Catholics, and if we didn't get along on all the finer points, we at least understood that we were all working from the same basic understanding of what it meant to be Catholic. We're losing that. And I'm seeing a lot of good people fighting with otherwise good people. And we can't meet in the middle. And that's a problem. One of the marks of the church, what is it? The four marks of the church, ready? One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. We know this. This is basic catechism 101. But we're losing the one part. We're losing the unity part. I don't know where it's going. um, But it's bothersome. It's hurtful to see people fighting like this. Because we're not working against a world that's still trying to kill us. You know, trying to subvert everything that we believe in. And a house divided, you know, the rest will not stand, right? So what do we do? So 1 Peter 5, for me, was a means by which to escape from the culture of negativity, of criticism, of, you know, constant analysis to the point of destruction of what's going on and trying to make people see what you believe the problems are, but you can't convince anybody of anything. It just, it wasn't going anywhere. There are people I know who are helped by those conversations and discussions, but I don't know. I felt like we could do better and I felt called to do better, to not just tear down what was bad, but to build up what was good So my focus is on rediscovering Catholicism, and that's been a theme in my own life, and it's been very enriching. Figuring out the things that made Catholicism great, 
that made it the driving force of Western civilization and bringing them back wherever we can, picking up those traditions, you know, figuring out the things that we did you know, in terms of devotions or in parish life that worked before. How do we bring those back? How do we make those you know, present again for most people? How about we look around and we find the people who are doing things that are working and we share that information with each other? So, for example, in the diocese where I attend Mass, the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia, there is something called the Institute of Catholic Culture. And it's an organization that's designed entirely around educating the faithful. It's not based in any parish specifically, but it, it, it's a diocesan level apostolate that educates the Catholics that live here in the ways that they should understand and live their faith. And they cover a breadth of topics and bring in speakers from all over. They do some incredible work. I'm not aware of another diocese that's doing that. I would like to find ways to get in touch with the people who are running that and share that with all of you. You know, in my family, we've rediscovered the importance of the daily rosary, which was something we didn't always do. And I'm to blame for that because I didn't want to do the daily rosary because it was a pain and it made my kids scream and run around and none of them could sit still and I was getting frustrated and I didn't even like praying the rosary that much. But when we started devoting ourselves to it again, something changed. Our lives always are better and more at peace uh, when we come together to pray the rosary specifically. You know, is that something you do in your family? And and. If it isn't, then we want to share with you the things that are beneficial to us. Or if it is, then tell us what you do to make it work. So many things across the board that we can be doing to try to help build each other up, to make the church stronger. So whatever happens, whatever crisis and crises we have to weather, people are going to have something to hold on to that feels more permanent. And right now, not a lot about the contemporary church feels very permanent. And I've seen people begin to lose their faith because they don't see what to hold on to in the storm. And they start wondering, you know, why did I convert to this religion? Or I grew up in this religion, but did I not question it enough? Was I not thinking it through? Because things seem really bad. And yes, those people need to make sure that they're on the right path. And they need to stay close to God through the sacraments. But we can't exactly blame them for being scandalized by things that are scandalous, because they are. So that's the purpose of 1 Peter 5, and it's going to be the purpose of, of this podcast, which is going to add another layer to that, where we're going to talk about the stories that matter to you. And we're looking at our statistics every day, and we're seeing the stories that you're sharing and that you're reading um, and we're going to talk to the authors of those stories, and we're going to find ways to dive deeper into the topics that you really want to hear more about. So that's our hope, and that's our plan. This is the first podcast I've ever done in my life, so I hope that we're hitting the mark. But if not, we'll take your feedback, and we'll begin tailoring this to be more suitable to your needs. So thanks again for joining us, and in our next segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about the big stories that we had on the site in the last week. Stay tuned. Top Stories, the week in review. So there were really two big stories that rose to the top and just blew everything else out of the water in the last week. Um, and those two stories were What Did the Saints Say About Islam by Andrew Biazad. And that one came in at, well, we're looking at 19,408 views in the last seven days. We also had Spiritual Warfare, Why We Are Losing by Father Richard Heilman. That came in at 16,697 views over the last seven days. There's a commonality between these two posts. The posts about Islam are really 
starting to take off. And I think that that's understandable given the context of what's going on in the Middle East with ISIS and the growing caliphate uh, and the fears over what's happening to Christians in Iraq and in Syria. I mean, it's bad. It's some of the worst, most demonic stuff I've ever seen. And I tend to be a news junkie and pay a lot of attention to this. I've never seen a threat that seemed quite so dangerous as these guys. And I know a lot of people think that it's not something to be taken too seriously, but I think we need to keep an eye on this because there's something about it that just feels different than other things that I've seen. But I mean, that's speculation. I think that others feeling the same way are actually finding it reassuring that we're talking about the way the church viewed Islam traditionally in the past, and it and it saw it as sort of an antithetical force. Hilaire Belloc called Islam a heresy. He said that it was basically a distortion of Catholic belief, and it arose six centuries after the Catholic Church was founded, so there's some some sense in which it definitely was influenced by not only uh, the Jewish religion, but also the Catholic religion, which had been spreading throughout that that area of the world that entire time. And of course, we have some of the oldest Christian communities there in the Middle East, in Syria and in Iraq, the Chaldean Christians, uh, you know, foremost among them. But these saints, they were not gentle about Islam. And the quotes that Andrew provided, some of them were very, very interesting. You know, we have, I'll read through just a couple of these ones that are a little bit more significant. Here's a, here's kind of an intense one. We profess Christ to be truly God and your prophet to be a precursor of the Antichrist and other profane doctrine. That was from a collection of martyrs. This was in 851, and they were martyrs in Cordoba, Spain, uh, who wanted them to convert to Islam on pain of death. And their response was, your religion is the precursor to the Antichrist. We professed Christ. Another group of martyrs uh, from the same period of time in Spain, and remember, Spain was occupied for over 800 years uh, by Muslim forces. Uh, in the, in the south, southern regions of Spain is where you really saw that concentration. But So this was the following year from Saints Aurelius, Felix, George, Liliosa, and Natalia in 852, martyrs of Cordoba, Spain. They said that any cult which denies the divinity of Christ, which Islam does, does not profess the existence of the Holy Trinity, refutes baptism, defames Christians, and derogates the priesthood, we consider to be damned. I mean, there's no parsing that one, really. These are, these are saints that didn't pull any punches, and they died for saying this, and they're in heaven because they're martyrs. So there's an aspect of truth here that we're not seeing uh, when we read comments like from uh, the Holy Father, Pope Francis, is in, uh, not encyclical, but apostolic, exhortation at Evangelii Gaudium, where he says in paragraph 253, quote, faced with disconcerting episodes of violent fundamentalism, our respect for true followers of Islam should lead us to avoid hateful generalizations for authentic Islam and the proper reading of the Quran are opposed to every form of violence, end quote. We clearly have a dichotomy of understanding between these saints of of the church uh, from 1,200 years ago, and the Holy Father is writing in in what is essentially a personal opinion and an ecumenical opinion today. Let's contrast again what he says in Evangelii Gaudium to uh, what was said by St. Juan de Ribera, uh, who uh, died in 1611. Uh, He was the Archbishop of Valencia and a missionary to Spanish Muslims. And he was quoted in several locations. um, But one of the most significant uh, quotes that that I thought Andrew brought forth was this one. As we have seen, Muhammad had neither supernatural miracles nor natural motives of reason to persuade those of his sect. As he lacked in everything, he took to bestial and barbaric means, which is the force of arms. Thus he introduced and promulgated his message with robberies, murders, and bloodshedding. 
destroying those who did not want to receive it, and with the same means his ministers conserve this today, until God placates his anger and destroys this pestilence from the earth. These things are difficult to reconcile. What the church says now, and what the church said then, it's tough. And in the documents of Vatican II, we have an example of this. Specifically in Nostra Aetate, which was the document, uh, the declaration on the relation of the church to non-Christian religions, which was promulgated in 1965. So in paragraph three, it says, the church regards with esteem also the Muslims. They adore the one God, living and subsisting in himself, merciful and all-powerful, the creator of heaven and earth, who has spoken to men. They take pains to submit wholeheartedly to even his inscrutable degrees, decrees, just as Abraham, with whom the faith of Islam takes pleasure in linking itself, submitted to God. Though they do not acknowledge Jesus as God, they revere him as a prophet. They also honor Mary, his virgin mother. At times, they even call on her with devotion. In addition, they await the day of judgment when God will render their deserts to all those who have been raised up from the dead. Finally, they value the moral life and worship God, especially through prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. So we have, again, a document of the church saying they adore the one God living and subsisting in himself, merciful and all-powerful, etc., etc. And then on the other hand, we have the saints who actually confronted Islam saying that it is a pestilence that God in his anger will destroy from the face of the earth. It it remains, here's another quote from St. Juan de Rivera, it remains an impious, blasphemous, vicious cult, an intervention of the devil and the direct way into the fires of hell. It does not even merit the name of being called a religion. You tell me. I don't know how we make these things work together. And this is one of the difficult things about trying to sort of comb through the historical understanding of the church. And I know that what the saints are saying, I can hear the complaints. I know that what the saints are saying is not doctrine, but it's clearly not erroneous because part of the process of canonization is making sure that saints didn't promulgate writings that were filled with doctrinal or theological error. They could have made mistakes based on an, an inadequate understanding. There's a list, though, of popes who've said similar statements, and those were not included in Andrew's article, but I've read them before. The church had a different take. I mean, Pope Urban II called the First Crusade. So we clearly have a precedent for even a pope saying, enough's enough. This has got to stop. And it was the same kind of stuff that was going on now. Now, we understand that... There's no way to call for a crusade right now. It would endanger so many Christians around the world to try to do something like that, and that's probably not the right course of action anyway. But we have this need to do something, and Christians in Iraq are... are, I mean, it's the brutality is at a level that I have never witnessed. I'm a hard person to shock, but when I see these little kids being led, you know... And, and laid down, kids three, four years old, I have boys that age, laid down with their necks on rocks and having their heads cut off, and the guys doing it just wearing, you know, flip-flops and laughing and taking selfies. There's something not right um, on a level that goes so far beyond any kind of barbarism I think we've ever experienced. And so it's a huge problem. And I think that this also ties into why Father Heilman's peace was so popular because spiritual warfare it's real it's happening we we're fighting against principalities and powers there are forces driving the events in the world today they're not just the ambitions and desires of men there is demonic activity in the world now i'm not going to get into it but i used to work for an exorcist and i've seen some things I'm telling you, it's not pleasant, but it does remind you that it's real. And we need to be prepared because most of us will never, probably, God willing, never encounter the sort of extraordinary uh, 
uh, interaction with the demonic that some people do. And the extraordinary would be these manifestations that go above and beyond temptation and things like that. But it doesn't mean that spiritual warfare isn't being waged. It's, it's definitely happening every day. And it happens in the little things and the little details of life and the irritations that make you angry and make you treat people without charity or the fights that you get in with people on the internet because you disagree with them about something that you think is fundamental or, you know, the, the temptations uh, to lust that are all around us everywhere we look. Men, I know you know what I'm talking about. You can't spend any time on the internet without running into something that's an occasion of sin. There's always an ad or a picture on the sidebar or a link to another story that's just indecent. And you know if you go down that road, you're going to wind up in more trouble than you started with. And so being able to resist those things, to kill those urges right when they start, that requires a strong prayer life and spiritual warfare. And it's the only thing we've got to combat the evils that we face in the world that are so big and so incomprehensible that we don't even know how to take them on. I'm talking about stuff like abortion. We don't know what to do. And now I'm talking about stuff like ISIS and the crisis in the Middle East. We feel powerless. We don't know what to do because we don't have the means to stop the evils that are happening in the world around us. And it can be crushing to face that. It's crushing to know that these things are going on and to just be driven to the point of tears, wanting to do something to make it stop. And you don't have the power. But God does. And we have to trust him. And we have to rely on him. In one of the first features that we published on 1 Peter 5 on our launch on August 1st, I had... I asked, and I was, I was so pleased to receive a positive response. I, I reached out to John C. Wright, who is a science fiction author, a successful science fiction author, um, who converted to Catholicism in 2008. And I own a bunch of his books. I have been reading him for a while. And I asked him to write about how his faith informs his work. And when he got into the story of how science fiction really dovetails with being Catholic, he talks in this imagery that, that Chesterton would have loved. It's, it's reminiscent of the ethics of Elfland, you know, which is the, the third chapter of Orthodoxy, where he talks about you know, all the beautiful things in the world that inspire the imagination and that lead us to understand that supernatural things must be real. Um, but the way John talks about the spiritual life. Let me let me just read you a segment because it's one of the most brilliant things I've ever read about Catholicism. He says, "But I am a Catholic. In my world, every sunrise is the trumpet blast of creation, more astonishing than a bomb burst, and every nightfall is the opening of a vast roof into the infinite dance of deep heaven, where the stars and planets reel and waltz to the music of the spheres." When I was in China, the tour guide saw me stop to give alms to beggars. He watched in wonder and asked me why I was tipping the beggars. I told him, our God walks the earth in disguise dressed as a beggar, and any man who does not give alms with both hands is stricken with a curse and flung screaming into a lake of fire. One might think that an odd reason to give alms, or even an impure or superstitious reason, but no one can say it is a prosaic reason. To see God in a beggar's careworn and quotidian face is the very soul of romance. Romance? Let me say something of the wild poetry that now rules my life. I have a charm chalked on my front door to call a blessing down from wide heaven. I carry a rosary like a deadly weapon in my pocket and hang the medallion of St. Justin Martyr, whose name I take as my true name, atop my computer monitor where he can stare at me. Two angels follow me unseen as I walk, and I live in a world of exorcists 
and barefoot friars, muses and prophets, healers who lay on hands, mighty spiritual warriors hidden in crippled bodies, and fallen angels made of pure malicious spirit, obeying their damned and darkened sultan from his darkest throne in hell. And I live in a world where a holy child was born, a secret king, beneath a magic star, and the animals knelt and prayed, and from that dread lord the small child will save us. You may think my world inane, insane, or uncouth, or false, but by the beard of St. Nicholas, by the breastplate of St. Patrick, and by the severed head of St. Valentine, no one can say it is not romantic. My life these days is a storybook story. If there were more romance in it, it would be enough to choke Jonah's whale. Without Catholicism, there is no romance. Outside the church, where are the miracles? It's beautiful prose, and it sticks with you because it's not just poetic, but it's true. Carrying a rosary like a deadly weapon against the fallen angels, you better believe it has that power. Praying the rosary every day is one of the best things you can do to strengthen yourself against the forces of darkness. Father Heilman makes three more specific and concrete suggestions outside of the rosary that he wants you to keep in mind. First, he says, go to confession frequently. He quotes St. Augustine, the whole power of the sacrament of penance consists in restoring us to God's grace and joining us with him in an intimate friendship. This very moment I may, if I desire, become the friend of God. Go to confession at least once a month and immediately after any grave sin, never receive Holy Communion with serious sin on your soul. Secondly, he says, go to Mass frequently. St. Peter Julian Amard tells us to hear Mass daily. It will prosper the whole day. All your duties will be performed the better for it, and your soul will be stronger to bear its daily cross. The Mass is the most holy act of religion. You can do nothing that can give greater glory to God or be more profitable for your soul than to hear Mass both frequently and devoutly. It is a favorite devotion of the saints. Father Hellman recommends that you do your best to find a parish that is offering a reverent Mass, especially if you have the, the responsibility of the salvation of family members. Because, let's face it, folks, liturgy matters. Finally, consecrate yourself to Jesus through Mary. Once St. Maximilian Kolbe, Father Hallman writes, learned about St. Louis de Montfort's consecration to Mary, he called it the surest, easiest, shortest, and most perfect means to becoming a saint. He called it a secret weapon for the world, a shortcut to holiness. Mary crushes the head of the serpent. Always keep Mary at your back. We've got to take concrete steps every day. We can't just kind of pretend the devil isn't around and there are no fallen angels sent here to tempt us. It's on, guys. It's real, and it happens every single day. And if you aren't on guard, they'll take advantage of you. They'll take advantage of the fact that you have either convinced yourself that they don't exist or you're acting as if it's true. Because subtlety is something that they've mastered over the many, many, many centuries that they have been tempting men. We've got to fight. And the only armor and armament we have are those weapons that God gives us. Because we cannot fight these battles with fists or swords or guns. In Ephesians 6.10, St. Paul tells us, Brethren, be strengthened in the Lord and in the might of his power. Put you on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the deceits of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power, against the rulers of the world of this darkness, against the spirits of wickedness in the high places. Therefore, take unto you the armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and to stand in all things perfect. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of justice, 
and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In all things taketh the shield of faith, wherewith you may be able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the most wicked one. And take unto you this helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, by all prayer and supplication, praying at all times in the Spirit, and in the same watching with all instance and supplication for all the saints. And I would add to that the short reading from 1 Peter 5, where we get the name of our site from. 1 Peter 5, 8-9, which is used every night in, in Compline in the, in the old Divine Office, the 1962 books. These admonitions and preparations against evil before you go to sleep at night. And it's a powerful thing. He says, Brothers, be sober and watch, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, goeth about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist ye, strong in faith. This image of the devil as a lion prowling about, it reminds us of the strength and the power that evil has. We can't overcome it. I don't know about you, I'm a big guy. I'm not going toe-to-toe with a lion. There's nothing I can do about that. Yeah, maybe if I've got a big gun. But, but putting it into context, you know, the devil, he's a seraphim. He is so much more powerful than anything we could conceive of. And so are all of the fallen angels. And so are the good ones. They're incredibly powerful. We can't beat them. They're smarter than us. They're stronger than us. They're older than time. We can't beat them without God. So we've got to ask. And we've got to call on Him. And we can make it happen. Make sure you pray. Every day. Morning and night. Don't skip your rosary. You're listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. Culture. Catholic life. Sacraments. Theology. Current events. Rebuilding Catholic culture. Restoring Catholic tradition. Welcome back to the third and final segment of today's show. This is the interview segment where we talk to a Catholic thinker of note about their field of expertise to try to come to a better understanding of our faith and the way that those who practice it interact with the world. My guest today is Andrew Bezet. He has an MA in Islamic Studies from Hartford Seminary with a concentration in the Islamic equivalent of dogmatic theology. He is the author of Lions of the Faith, Saints, Blesseds, and Heroes of the Catholic Faith and the Struggle with Islam, available from Lux Orbis Press. He is a sought-after writer and speaker on Islamic topics, and he is currently the most popular writer on 1 Peter 5, with over 42,000 page views on just two posts. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, I'd like you to give me a little bit of background on you. How did you get into Islamic studies? Well, it's a rather interesting story. Um, when I was about 12, 13 years old, I was interested in reading unique writers. And I was reading, I was reading Dante, uh, Karl Marx, so forth. And one of those I picked up was, I just, I just finished reading, um, Up from Slavery by, I forget the author's name, but he's a very, he's a very famous American author. And I decided I wanted to read another book that was, a different perspective, and I came across Malcolm X's autobiography of Malcolm X at a, at a used book sale, and I read it, and I was fascinated with his conversion to Islam and his life story. What particularly fascinated me about Malcolm X was that Malcolm X was a person who believed in Islam, this religion at the time, I didn't know anything about it, and that for some reason, he could say that it was a peaceful religion, yet it also allowed him to do violent things and say violent things. <laughs> right. And the question then becomes, now obviously, as you know, Malcolm X became much more peace-oriented toward the end of his life before he was murdered. But the question then for me became, what does this thing called Islam actually teach? So I went to my middle school library, and I got a copy of the Quran. And I read that, and I found the same problem again. You can find pieces in the Quran that are legitimately um, humane and decent, but you also find pieces that are 
horrendously violent. And, and this is not something like you might see people talk about biblical texts where you know, God went out and killed 40,000 Amalekites or so forth. This is a personal command to you know, murder those who oppose your will and Allah does what he wills and you are to abuse these people and make them pay an onerous tax willing submission until they themselves feel subdued. Quran chapter 9 verse 29 is one example. And so I did not understand how could one hold two completely contradictory views at the same time. It almost seemed like uh, there should be some sort of cognitive dissonance that should happen. And so I've started reading some more. And when I couldn't find answers, I, want, I decided to turn to the classical sources of Islamic theology or Islamic sacred tradition. It's called the Hadith. Um, I should also note that at the time, I was not interested in listening to what other people said about Islam. For instance, you have good speakers like Robert Spencer, um, who writes some very good works, but I didn't know much about him, and because I didn't know much about Islam, I did not want to take what he said on faith. Likewise, I did not want to simply take Muslim missionary propaganda and believe that on faith either, because that would be just as erroneous. I wanted to see what Islam said in its own writings. Seems like a sensible course of action. Yes, it is. Um, so I thought. And sure enough, I just became more engrossed by this. Um, I picked up a copy of the most popular hadith collection and the most respected, the Sahih al-Bukhari. And I, all nine volumes, English and Arabic, parallel text, and I read that. Then I went to a local mosque and I picked up a copy of Sahih Muslim, which is another very highly respected collection of Islamic sacred tradition. And I just continued from there. And sure enough, within a few years, I had acquired a library of classical Islamic texts. I was interested in learning Arabic. And I found that my original observations about Islam had not changed, except what became more apparent to me is that there were fewer parts that were actually so-called peace-minded or uh, I should even say humane-minded, and many more parts that were much more violent or deviant or just disgusting and disturbing. And this really comes out when you read Islamic sacred tradition because the thing most people don't understand is that although we have much more to our Catholic faith and sacred tradition than just the Bible, the Bible contains both the words that God said and the things that God did. Um, Islam does not do this. So, for instance, when Jesus is preaching the Beatitudes, he, the Bible says, you know, Jesus went up to the mountain with his disciples and he sat down and he began to teach them. And then he starts speaking. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, and so forth. What Islam does is they will separate Jesus' speech, for instance, and they would, that would be the Quran. And then the Hadith would be the context, the part where Jesus walked up to the mountain and sat down with his disciples. Okay. So by, divide, by putting the Quran and the Hadith together, you can get a complete picture of Islamic history, theology, and belief. And when you put these together, Islam becomes something that's really a rather disturbing religion, I would say founded by a 7th century Arabian madman who, I can say based on the tradition, claimed he was demonically possessed, promoted pedophilia, uh, some cases bestiality, um, necrophilia, murder, assassinations, rape, and every other heinous sin that you can think of. Sounds like a great guy to have at a party, huh? Oh, he is a great guy to have at a party. <laughs> <laughs> just don't have any loot. I just don't have any booze. So for those of you at home uh, who might be picking up a little bit of background noise, Andrew is coming to us from an undisclosed location somewhere uh, in Connecticut. Uh, he has at a coffee shop. Um, so if you heard Little Red Corvette playing through the background, that's why. So <laughs> I did want to ask a question uh, about, you know, your graduate studies were done at Hartford Seminary. So that's yes. a non-denominational graduate school. Were you Catholic at that time? Uh, yes, I've always been Catholic uh, ever since I was born. And I obviously have chosen to persist in my faith. So what attracted you to that school? Hartford Seminary is really a nifty place because it was the first place in the country that ever had an Islamic studies program. Okay. You see, Catholic missionaries, when they went to the Muslim world, they went through one of the religious orders, usually the Franciscans or Dominicans. In the case of the Protestant missionaries, and this is mainline Protestant I'm speaking of, they went through Hartford Seminary. Now, this is because Hartford Seminary's Islamic studies program was founded, I think, in 1895 by a couple of Scottish Presbyterian ministers, one of them being Duncan Black MacDonald, um, who came to the Hartford area and settled 
and began to teach. Um, Hartford Seminary was traditionally a congregationalist school. They trained and still do train ministers for the Congregationalist Church. Um, what's interesting about Hartford Seminary is that around nine, they had done a lot of missionary outreach to Muslims, and I should say very good missionary outreach uh, from a Protestant point of view. However, around 1950, their missionaries came back, and they had a very interesting report. Um, they claimed that Muslims already knew God, and they did not have a need for hearing about Jesus or Christian missionary work and salvation and so forth because they already knew God, and obviously they were already saved. Um, around 1975, the seminary officially secularized. It still trained ministers of the Congregationalist Church, but it, no, it considered itself a, quote, interfaith seminary. And their Islamic studies program went from being something of really studying Islam from a critical point of view to, quote, understanding and tolerance and interfaith relations. And the, what's happened now is the seminary has, is, is, has not become yet, but is in the process of becoming a Muslim seminary, where Muslims wow. go to train to be Muslim missionaries. And keep in mind, this was, 100 years ago, produced some of the best Protestant minds for Islamic studies that were against Islam. Wow. Yeah, it's, it, the transition's amazing. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, I mean, I guess in a way, it, it speaks again to to the questions that I want to ask you. So your piece, uh, the one that was published second, called What Did the Saints Say About Islam? <laughs> it's the most read article we've published to date. It, by itself, has over 38,000 page views. Wow. Um, and it's resonating with people. And I think that you know the quotes that you pulled from the saints, especially those saints who dealt with um, or were martyred by the Islamic occupation of Spain that lasted the better part of 800 years, these are not diplomatic or ecumenical quotes towards Islam. Why do you think that what's being said in that, in that article is resonating with people so strongly? Because people know the truth. I mean, people who I've, 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 I've spoken to many different people in many different areas for better part of, my goodness, seven, almost eight years now. And I find that a lot of people know there is something fundamentally wrong with Islam in spite of, in spite of what a lot of these uh, socialist and uh, far left-wing types say that Islam is the religion of peace and that you know, if you do not believe this, you are some kind of racist or bigot or you just hate Muslims uh, and so forth. They know that something is fundamentally wrong with this religion, but they do not have the knowledge, the training, or the skills to understand why. And I do not fault them for this. You know, it'd be like me... Um, no, knowing something is wrong with our financial system, yet not yet lacking the knowledge to explain how derivatives work, how um, money supply and money creation work, simply because I don't have that knowledge. And I think it's resonating because someone like me who has that knowledge, who has that training, who's been who's invested himself for I don't know, sixteen, almost seventeen years into this uh, endeavor, sure. can understand and articulate this in a way that is simple, makes sense, and connects with what they know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, you mentioned in the first piece that you wrote for 1 Peter 5, uh, which was called The Dialogue Delusion, yeah. that you had sort of, I guess you would call them thinly veiled death threats the first day of classes in your Islamic studies program. Yes. So, you know, I want to know about that, but I also, I'm wondering if, if intimidation really plays a role in people's willingness to say what they really think about Islam and then sort of the converse of that, watching the things that are going on in the Middle East, is that making people angry enough that they're starting to say, you know what, I'm going to actually say what I really think. In the Quran, chapter 8, verse 12, um, Muhammad says that Allah says, وَقَالَ لَهُ إِلَى الْمَلَائِكِ Verily, Allah said to the angels, I am, with you, I am with thee. I will strike terror into the hearts of the infidels. Mm. You know, terrorism in Islam, people think that terrorism is a tactic meant to bring about just plain fear. That is completely incorrect. The purpose of terrorism is to do things first, is to stop disagreement with Islamic teaching, which is for the greater end, which is the conversion of people to Islam. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is why it exists. So the terrorism that you see, and people are legitimately afraid because Islam does legitimize violence against those who do not believe in it or oppose it. Uh, keep in mind, I say it legitimizes it. It does not mandate it. Uh, sure. So for the, the, the actual distinction in Islamic law is something that's called maqbul, which means it is permissible. And the words of Muhammad, la dirar wa la darur. It's neither harmful nor helpful. 
So you can choose to do it. You can choose not to do it. But there is no sin involved. Mm. The same with ISIS. You know, this is the reason why you say people can say, "Well, I have Muslim neighbors, and they're not going. They're not violent, and maybe they are not, because they do not have to be violent." However, should they choose to, at any moment's notice, they can do that, and there is no sin attached to that. Okay. There's nothing morally wrong with that. Um, so that is, I think, one of the reason, one of the big issues when it comes to talking about Islam with people, uh, with with people today. Um, it's good that people are finally starting to talk about it more because the main issue with Islam is that its danger is real. It's not a peaceful religion. It's not something that's nice. And what these saints said. Uh, they told it like it was, and that's right. the reason I wrote the article. Um, a bit of background to this: When I was in grad school, I found a book. It was written in Russian. I also studied Russian, and it was a book of what the Orthodox Church calls the Neo Martyrs. Uh, Neo Martyrs are martyrs that basically came after the rise of Islam, and most of them have something to do with Islam. Okay. And I read through this book, and I'm thinking, wow, the, or- the Orthodox have quite a few. I wonder what our Catholic faith has. Hmm. So I found one. And then I found another, and sure enough, the it just snowballed. Well, that makes sense. I mean, how long did they spend sweeping across North Africa and Southern Europe? North Africa, they um, Amr ibn Qas invaded Egypt and took uh, Fustat, burned it in 639 A.D. Um, Tariq ibn Ziyad crossed Morocco into Spain in 711, so about 80 years. Um, and at the same time, we also forget that the Muslim world waged a continual jihad uh, via piracy since its inception until about the year 1860, 1870. Okay. Um, so you're the better part of 1,300 years here. Would this be the, the Barbary pirates that we're talking about? Yes. Um, Barbary pirates, most of them put that period of history from something of around 1500 to 1700 but the Barbary pirates have been around much longer than that they actually they they were infamous for what's called Anukhas, the white slave trade mm-hmm. um, two religious orders were founded solely to counteract their influence the Mercedarians and the Trinitarians um, all the saints I've written about in my book Lions of the Faith um, and they were a real scourge I mean people do not understand how dangerous how much of a threat these people played and how many things they were involved in. It wasn't just capturing people. It was military invasions. It was spying. It was it was weapons running. We'd call gun running today. Mm. Money running. And these connections went very deep. You even actually, and I wrote about this in my book, you actually had at one point Calvinist revolutionaries who were working for better part of about 100 years in various stages with the Barbary pirates and with the Ottoman Empire to try to have a land invasion of the Catholic countries in Europe. It's known as Turco-Calvinism phenomenon wow <laughs> i've never even heard of it yep you you can't make this stuff up actually in my book i have a picture of a medal that was worn by dutch protestant sailors who were allies of the muslims now these people are calvinist protestants and this right. it's it's a medal actually in the shape of a crescent moon and on one side it says better a turk than a papist in the back <laughs> it says in 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 spite of the mass wow better yeah. a turk than a papist Better a Turk than a papist. So you're threatened on your first day of classes. You're told oh, that yeah. because you believe, you know, in Catholicism and not in Islam, that you know you technically deserve to die. Yes. How does this interaction shape your course of study? You know, as you work towards your degree, a lot of people would have been probably put off by that right away and said, you know, I think I'm going to go look at uh, interior decorating or something else. But <laughs> but you you persisted, and so how did that? I mean, did it add impetus to your desire to understand what this was all about? It only fueled my beliefs that I already had that I needed to be here and I needed to study. You know, the professor who admitted me to Harvard Seminary, uh, her name was Dr. Jane Smith. Uh, I believe she teaches at Harvard University now. She is quite liberal, and she and I have actually had some public disagreements about Islam before, but I have a lot of respect for her because she, when she admitted me to the program, she said, you know, your opinions are very different than most of the people here, but that's what we need here. We need to have a different voice, somebody who has different views to add balance. So I, I can I can respect that definitely from an academic point of view. You bring up a good point, though. Why is it, do you think, that uh, the progressives of this country and, and really throughout the West um, who who seem to, 
to believe in things that are so antithetical to the Muslim practices of, of morality uh, and, and religion and the way that they treat women. Why are they so big on promoting this religion as, as, as laudable when they look to undercut Christianity at, at every turn? Because they push their own view of what they would like to be upon it. For instance, it's almost like um, someone who's delusional. You know, you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. If they, they believe this particular viewpoint of Islam, and they see it as a power struggle. They see this as a power struggle. And this is a problem that you find within our government in particular. You know, people say America is a Christian country. I disagree. We have a lot of Christians in the country, but we're really a secular country. And one of the issues that this one of the ways this really plays out is how we deal with the Muslim world. You know, a, the ally with, and this is not just America, this is many other governments that have come before us. They, Islam, when it is in a large body of people, it significantly influences their way of thinking, uh, modus operandi, and lifestyle to the point where they can be actually very easily manipulated. And so many governments have figured this out, going back all the way to um, Pippin and, and, the, and Charlemagne, you can see this. The problem, though, with Islam is, as Hilaire Baloch pointed out in his in his book, on, I think it was on Mohammedism, he said that Islam's spiritual foundation remains unmovable, and ultimately that is the issue that you can control Muslims and Islam for a time, but they always rise up and rebel, and usually victoriously. Yeah, he Progress- mentioned that again in, in Survivals and New Arrivals as well. Yes, and th- this is very, very true. The progressives, I believe, and this is just my experience dealing with it, they think that this is a power struggle between the Christians and the Muslims, and they think that they can divide and conquer and really fill the power vacuum once that opens up. The problem is Islam moves solely moves into power vacuums. That is the only way that it has ever conquered. Wherever Christianity has become divided um, into disarray or has collapsed from society is where Islam grows best. Or where we topple strongmen, uh, dictators who kept Islamic regimes suppressed, uh, like we saw in Iraq and in Egypt. Exactly. You know, people criticize Bashar al-Assad for being, quote, the butcher of Syria, and he wasn't a nice guy. He was not nice. The thing that most people do not understand about Assad was Assad was an Alawite. Alawites are a heretical sect of Shia Islam. They actually worship um, Muhammad as a god Mm. alongside his cousin Ali. And one of Muhammad's converts to Islam called Salman the Persian. They actually have their own trinity. Wow. And these people constitute approximately one-fifth of Syria's population. Okay. So you have one-fifth are Alawites, one-fifth are regular Shiites, one-fifth are Christians of various sects, most of them um, most of them Orthodox Christians, but many Catholics and many uh, members of the Assyrian Church of the East. And then you have one-fifth are Sunni Muslims. The Asa, the Alawite family has a vested in the Alawite minority has a vested interest in keeping the peace between the different groups in this particular case because they know that if they do not keep the peace and a war breaks out they will they will get butchered. They know this. Okay. So uh, us going into that country as one example, we just created division and we opened up a power vacuum that Orthodox Islam can move into, and then you see the fruits of it. Right. Right. Exactly. And so. You know, we're touching on uh, sort of the interplay between Christianity and Islam in the Middle East. So I wanted to to bring up that the Archbishop of Mosul uh, recently released a statement on what's happening to his flock and what has happened uh, in Iraq. Uh, I'd like to read you a quote. He wrote, quote, Our sufferings today are the prelude of those you, Europeans and Western Christians, will also suffer in the near future. I lost my diocese. The physical setting of my apostolate has been occupied by Islamic radicals who want us converted or dead. But my community is still alive. Please try to understand us. Your liberal and democratic principles are worth noting here. You must consider again our reality in the Middle East because you are welcoming into your countries an ever-growing number of Muslims. You also are in danger. You must take strong and courageous decisions, even at the cost of contradicting your principles. You think all men are equal, but that is not true. Islam does not say that all men are equal. Your values are not their values. If you do not understand this soon enough, you will become the victims of the enemy you have welcomed into your home. What do you make of that? 
I have nothing to say to that because he has said everything. You know, that is the problem. What what these what these socialists have done by inviting these large Muslim populations in, whether they think they're being charitable or whether, from what I've seen, they think this is a power struggle in which they can divide and conquer. Or just cheap labor. Or just cheap labor, and which is the case many times in Europe. What happens is you are inviting a group of people in, not only who does not share your values, but these people want you can, as he said, they want you converted or dead. And the Islamic game, the Islamic plan does not work in two or three generations. I, I will tell you, there is a very famous Muslim speaker. He's actually down in Tennessee. He preaches at the, he's, he's think he's head imam at the mosque in Memphis. And he's also preaches a lot at the lo- very large mosque, largest in the south, which is actually in Chattanooga. And he's, his name, gosh, I'm trying to remember his name right now, but he said that the we, we can't think about conquering America within two or three generations. We have to look at 20 to 30 generations down from down the road and make plans that way. Wow. They're in this for the long haul. Yeah. They're in this for the long haul. And sounds this, like it. This is how Islam operates. Islam will wait a thousand years to move into an area, and when an opportune time opens up, it will move in. It it, it is very patient. You know, there's the song. Uh, I think it was by the Rolling Stones. Time is on my side. Right. That is how Islam operates. And, and you see, I mean, you see it everywhere. There's mosques popping up all over the place. I mean, I live in Northern Virginia and very close to Washington D.C. And this is, you know, an, an increasingly large population of Muslims and and just Africans in general coming over. Uh, that I, I've noticed, uh, you know, and we have, it's a huge melting pot here anyway. I mean, in, in the Arlington yeah. school system, I think 40 or 45 different languages are spoken, native languages to the students who go to the school there. So it's a big melting pot anyway, but, but there's a very noticeable increase yeah. in the Islamic population here. And, you know, it, it is a little bit concerning when you see the mosques popping up everywhere because you don't know what to think. The mosque, I will, I can tell you definitively, if you look at Islamic history and you go back, you read the Hadith, you see that the mosque, it is a spiritual place, but it is also a military, it also plays a military organization and operation. I'm, I'm going to mention this in my next article for your, for your website. You it's got ahead be, of me. I was going to ask you what the next one was going to be, but you beat me to my question. This one is going to be about the concept of life under Islam. And there are the great Islamic scholar Ibn Taymiyyah put it very well. He said there are two domains. There is Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb. Dar al-Islam is the house of Islam. These are all persons who are Muslims and properties which are possessed or under Islamic rule. Then there is the Dar al-Harb, which is the house of war. And these are all non-Islamic persons and properties that are not possessed by Islam. And the concept, the idea is, and this is taught by Muhammad, that the Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam, will eventually assimilate the house of war into itself by divine providence. And this is much preached about in the Quran. Muhammad spoke about this. So this is not some new innovation, but this is rather the doctrinal explanation of Islamic sacred dogma. Hmm. And this is very real. They believe this very. They believe this very much so. When I say they, I'm referring to the orthodox scholars, of course. And it's a part of the religion. You don't have to believe it per se if you are an individual Muslim. However, it doesn't change the fact that that's the official teaching. But basically, assimilation me. is is the mode of operation. Yes, assimilation and assimilation and usurpation. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is assimilation doesn't always have to happen slowly and gradually over time. Sometimes it can be a rather violent process. Oh, it can, but th- that is the um, that is one of the end goals. As Muhammad said, "Al-Ghaya al-Wisata," the end justify the means, just like from mm. Machiavelli. Right. And this this is you know another important concept to point out as well within Islam. As long as something is being done for fisabilillah, for the cause of Allah, anything is permissible. Include, I said, including murder, mayhem, lying, rape. This is all part of what's called in Islam taqiyah. Or deception, deception practice. Taqiyya literally, literally actually means acting with piety. from the verb taqa. So the way you show your piety for Allah is by realizing his will on earth, by spreading Islam by all means possible. Well, there's something to chew on. And actually, we're out of time. So I really <laughs> want to talk to you more. But I'd like to leave everyone with those uh, delightful thoughts on what we're facing as a cultural force uh, as it moves through not only the Middle East, but into the West. Um, I have very little doubt that we will 
actually speak to you again. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm gratified that I have no hard network breaks that I'm up against like a radio host. Uh, I have room to play with my time, but um, I think our segment alone is almost a half hour, and I was planning on going with about 15 minutes. But that's great because the information is fantastic, and it's hard to get enough of it. So, you know, we'll uh, we'll work on time management's not my best thing anyway. So that's fine. You have freedom. Hey, I'm 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 in charge. I'm the publisher, right? So I can I can right. decide these things. So absolutely. I really, really, really want to thank you for for being on and doing this interview with me, and I really appreciate you know you writing these articles for us. Um, they've been a huge success, and I think that they're answering a lot of questions for people. And I know you're way ahead of the game. You've always got two or three articles in the can before I even get a chance to to look at them. Um, so thank you for your your prolific gift for educating us lowly Catholics about this, uh, this religion that we know so little about. Thank you for having uh, me, or I should say for giving me the opportunity to do it. It's a distinct pleasure. Great. Well, by our powers combined, we're going to teach people about this. Amen. All right. Thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. All right. Take care. <laughs> Super. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the 1 Peter 5 Podcast, Episode 1. This has been a production of Signo Media, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out and all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5 and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com once again forward slash 1peter5. If you feel we have provided you with something of value, please hit the donate page on our website and leave a contribution. It not only helps pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, but also helps keep food on our tables. And we're hungry. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojek. Thanks for tuning in.